You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 13th of December 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. And I, of course, want to congratulate absolutely everybody involved in securing the biggest Conservative majority since the 1980s. My guests, Andrew Tuck, Tom Edwards and Monocle 24's guest analysts will discuss a UK election which has sealed the country's fate as a soon-to-be ex-member of the EU. Also ahead, what is the future for the UK's Labour Party? Indeed, having conceded its worst defeat since 1935, does it even have one? You kept meeting people who were traditional Labour voters who would look at Jeremy Corbyn and say, he's just one of those southern intellectuals. We'll also be hearing about what else we've learned this week elsewhere around the globe. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to today's show. I'm joined by Andrew Tuck, editor of Monocle, and Tom Edwards, executive producer of Monocle 24. The people of Britain have spoken, and among the things they have said pretty clearly are that they are still quite keen on leaving the EU and remain unpersuaded of such merits as may ever have been embodied by Jeremy Corbyn. The Conservative Party of Boris Johnson has won a colossal majority, circa 78 seats, the Tories' biggest win since the 1980s heyday of Margaret Thatcher. Here is a recap of how last night played out. Our exit poll is suggesting that there will be a Conservative majority, the Conservatives on 368 seats and Labour way down on 191. We are looking at a Conservative majority of 86 and that will be the biggest Conservative majority since Margaret Thatcher's third victory back in 1987. The total number of votes for Newcastle-upon-Tyne Central constituency is as follows. Chi Onwura Labour Party, 24,071. The first big upset, losing the long-held Labour seat of Blythe Valley. And I would like to thank Boris, because... We set out to make the Conservative Party Conservative again. I think we've its job done, but well done to Boris. Putney, this is in south-west London. Fleur Anderson, Labour Party, 22,780. So obviously we've got that prediction of a really, really staggering result for the SNP, according to the exit poll. Joe Swinson, Scottish Liberal Democrats, 19,000. 523. And I declare that Amy Callaghan is elected to serve in the United Kingdom Parliament as the member for the Eastern Bartonshire County constituency. Some will be celebrating the wave of nationalism that is sweeping on both sides of the border. Johnson, Alexander Boris de Feffel, commonly known as Boris Johnson, the Conservative Party candidate, 25,000. Bishop Auckland has been Labour since 1935. This seat goes back, back, back to the 30s. Um, well, look, it's gone Conservative. Brexit has so polarised and divided debate in this country, it has overridden so much of a normal political debate. 
The issues of social justice and the issues of needs of people will not go away. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I want to thank the people of this country for turning out to vote in a December election that we didn't want to call, but which I think has turned out to be a historic election that gives us now the chance to respect the democratic will of the British people, to change this country for the better and to unleash the potential of the entire people of this country. Well, listening to that was Monocle's editor, Andrew Tuck, and Monocle 24's executive producer, Tom Edwards. Uh, Andrew, first, first of all, I think like a lot of people, I assumed uh, that the Conservatives would win last night. I didn't assume they'd win that big. Are you surprised? I think everyone's taken by the, the, the scale of the victory. But I think most people, all the opinion polls had set up in in the days before, there would be a majority of maybe 50 or 60. Then they kind of edged back to like 38 or whatever. It was it was clear that Johnson had had a good campaign. He had a very simple message. And it was also clear that the Labour Party had a disastrous campaign and that Jeremy Corbyn had been mired in accusations of, against his party of anti-Semitism, which he'd failed to deal with at every level. He... His, his spending pledges seemed to be made up day by day. Nobody could follow what the man was on about when it came to Brexit. So it was clear that it would be a Johnson victory. But as you say, it's, it's an extraordinary victory for him. Uh, Tom, is there at least a, uh, a benefit of clarity here that the, the world now knows what it is dealing with where Britain is concerned? There is now no doubt about it. Britain will leave the European Union on January 31st. Uh, at the risk of being heard to echo uh, Johnson's message, which, as Andrew said, was a very simple one, all three words and four syllables of it, um, does it? actually uh, disentangle British politics? Well, I think it does uh, deliver uh, Brexit probably by the end of January. And in a strange way, perhaps one silver lining to the cloud of the size of this victory for, for Johnson is that it's of a scale that gives him probably a little additional flexibility as we move further forward. If he'd come home a dozen, 20, 30 ahead, he'd still have to be very guarded about how he dealt with the sort of lunatic fringes of his party. And I think one thing that we can perhaps hope for, particularly those of us that would obviously rather stay in the EU, but if we have to leave, leave on good terms uh, with a well-worked deal, is that Johnson can perhaps be slightly more flexible, uh, slightly more accommodating. Uh, and I think he's got enough momentum now that when he is dealing with Brussels, if we get into that complicated post-Brexit trade future relationship uh, to maybe soften it somewhat from where we were. That's me desperately attempting to find a silver lining somewhere. Uh, Andrew, do you think there's anything to that? Because there has been an amount of speculation since the margin of Johnson's victory became clear that perhaps this will uh, enable uh, what we fondly like to imagine is his inner liberal and he will mean he's, he's not beholden to the headbanger wing uh, of the Conservative Party as he might be with a smaller majority. Or is it in fact the case that the Conservative Party is now nothing but its headbanger wing? No, I think that Tom has a point there. I think you know, that the the dependency on the you know, the ERG is going to is going to fade away. This is you know the the really kind of hardcore uh, believers in Brexit who would have, you know were, were very happy for us to just fall out of the the EU, 
didn't seem to care what, what, what that might do to the country. I think he will have a little bit more manoeuvring. I think what we know about Johnson from everything he's done in his life, that he's a pure opportunist. Mm. Um, when he governed London as uh, London mayor, you know, he surrounded himself, let's be fair to him, by people who have, you know, uh, all colours, uh, people who are gay, people who are straight. He, he he seemed indifferent to any of that as long as he could get what he wanted and get his kind of, his act on the road. And I think that on those things, I don't, th- I think he, he's oddly, although he gets pilloried for what he said about Muslims, I think he's he's just a man who reaches for a, a quick joke sometimes. And actually on those social issues, he's he's probably as wishy, wishy-washy nicely as someone like Cameron was. But on the on the politics and the economic side, that's where we need to see his true colours come out, and that's the bit which I think is is less clear going forwards. Okay, we will hear more from Andrew and Tom in just a moment. Uh, let's look at the other side of the aisle because today's election result, or last night's election result, was disastrous for the UK's Labour Party, one of the very worst in its history. Uh, its leader, Jeremy Corbyn, attempted to pitch an ambitious programme of social welfare and inequality reduction along with an approach to Brexit, which he might have preferred to believe was pragmatic, but was often received as opaque, verging on inexplicable. It did not help that Corbyn was unable and his loudest supporters unwilling to dispel the miasma of hard-left crankery which has long shrouded him. Uh, Corbyn has already said he will not lead Labour into another election, but whoever succeeds him faces the political equivalent of refloating the Titanic. Well, earlier I spoke to the journalist Joy Ladico and the political analyst Ian Anderson about what the candidates of the UK's two leading parties did wrong or right, and we did begin by asking whether Labour's problem might just have been Corbyn himself. I'm afraid it may just have been Jeremy Corbyn. If you look at the sort of overall results, the Conservatives gained just over, I think, 1% in terms of vote share and the, Conser- and the Labour Party lose 8%. Now, where does that 8% go? Um, a friend of mine, the FT correspondent who covers Britain, uh, had come back from his tours of the North to report to us Londoners. He had sort of snow on his boots. And he said he kept meeting people who were traditional Labour voters who would look at uh, Jeremy Corbyn and say, he's just one of those southern intellectuals. And I think it might have been the BBC that did a little um, snippet interview with somebody. Um, Again, somebody, uh, we always say kind of working class, but basically just kind of normal person from up north, not somebody very rich. He said, yeah, I like Boris. He's just like one of us. He's just like one of us, working class. And uh, they went, have you just checked his, uh, have you checked his CV? I mean, this is kind of a guy who goes to, you know, Eton, the best school in the UK and Oxford. Yeah, yeah, but he's one of us, not like that, that Jeremy Corbyn. And so there was something very personal in the perception as to why they warmed to Boris. And they didn't warm to Corbyn, who, in fact, I thought was incredibly dignified, had a rather lovely message, but couldn't explain to a British person who was feeling quite... Um, unsure about their identity at the moment, which is a lot of what the Brexit vote is about, what Britain was. I don't think Boris did either, but he just, he turned, he was somewhere between a kind of Benny Hill character and a, you know, aren't we, let's go back to the Victorian era. And it spoke in a different way than Corbyn, who had these beautiful videos saying everybody was included, but then couldn't draw a line around what that thing was. Do you think it might have been that thing, Joy, and this is where I, I will cheerfully impose one of my own pet theories in, 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 into the discussion, that Jeremy Corbyn has always come across as very much uh, a part of that ossified old school British left that whether it's true or not always convey the impression they don't really like Britain very much and they find the country and its history and its traditions and its people kind of embarrassing and awkward whereas Boris Johnson 
obviously a man not without his own weaknesses and very much not without his own baggage, does always come across as an optimist. He's upbeat. He's cheerful. He, he does seem to profess that he likes this country and the people who live in it. Yes, yeah, so I think actually I think Corbyn does like the, this country and the people who live in it, but he cannot express it in a way that make people people understand that. And he, again, cannot talk about patriotism in a way that uh, speaks to people. This is a, but this is a traditional weakness of the, the, the English left in particular. They, they, they find their flag, they, they have weird feelings well, about they have, it. I, mean, I think it's in the last 40 or 50 years they've had trouble expressing what that thing is because they've also moved to kind of open the doors towards Europe and towards the world. And um, you know, his videos are very noticeable for the number of people who are not of kind of white British heritage in them. Boris Johnson, meanwhile, did something which was, I mean... I can't even explain. It's, it's, it, it, he, while, while Corbyn speaks about values, Boris Johnson was picking up a sheep in a bull ring, picking up a pint of milk. He was doing things with physical objects all the time. <laughs> and as a result, he just felt more human. He felt like, well, I am demonstrating what a kind of normal British person does. And it just spoke to the population and it defined what it was to be British, which was to deal with animals and milk and all sorts of basic uh, things. It, 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 the other thing Boris Johnson was doing, other than picking up sheep and mops <laughs> and pints of milk and driving bulldozers through polystyrene walls, um, was... It wasn't the most edifying campaign that's ever been run by a major party. I think we can agree on all of that. It did trade in untruths and evasions, and Boris Johnson did run serially from serious scrutiny. Is it a concern that all that worked? So, in a way, look, as a professional communicator, in a way, yes. Uh, sat here at you know lunchtime as the dust is settling on this result... Um, uh, you know, the Tories are probably sitting there going, well, yes, so what? So what that seven, uh, eight million people saw a Twitter uh, uh, clip of Andrew Neil saying, where are you? So what that 13 million people saw um, the Prime Minister take a reporter's mobile phone and put it in their pocket. You should note to listeners that that was you picking up an object there <laughs> to was. demonstrate. It was I did very, actually, very, very Johnsonian I, of you. Very Johnsonian yeah. of me. So, so I mean, there is a real so what in that, that actually I think the media has to think about and what kind of scrutiny do we subject our politicians to? And, and frankly, you know, in Britain right now, what works? Because clearly... Andrew Neil saying, this guy's running away from my studio, and an ITV reporter um, saying, Prime Minister, um, where is your emotion? Uh, that just did not connect with uh, the people that, in the end, what, 43 44% of the electorate that gave Johnson his majority. I mean, just, just briefly as well, I mean, the, the thing that was building up, though, be, you know, be, beyond what was going on in the Twitter sphere. But I, I watched how night after night after night, TV vox pops were going into traditional working class constituencies, and they were they were finding it really easy to find people saying, "I like this guy." And I'm going to go straight from Labour to the Tories. I identify with him. He's a patriot. Um, the other guy, Corbyn, doesn't even know when the Queen's speech takes place. He kind of watches it at breakfast. Well, it, I know it doesn't take place at breakfast. So, you know, he touched a nerve of, like it or not, where a lot of Britain is right now.
Ian Anderson and Joy Ladico there. Uh, Andrew, one of the oddities of the last few years, it strikes me, has been the uh, emergence of two very, very distinct and very powerful political identities that didn't exist four years ago, the idea of people thinking of themselves as Remainers or Leavers. Where does that energy go now? Because it now seems like a fairly redundant distinction. The argument has now been concluded, like it or not, Britain is going to leave. Where does a Remainer go now? Actually, it's also almost as good a question as where a Leaver goes now. Well, I'm a, an arch Remainer. I'm, a, I'm somebody who voted Remain and for the last few years has been desperate to see if there was a way for us to have a, a closer relationship with the EU than uh, last night uh, seems to hint at. But for me, I think like many people who are Remainers and many people who are Brexiteers as well, the last two years have just been exhausting. Mm. And if you try to recap what had happened over the last two years, since the 2017 election, rather, you would find it absolutely impossible to kind of remember all of the, the twists and turns. And during that time, a lot of government hasn't happened. A lot of things that need to be addressed in this country haven't happened. So although I definitely don't want to leave, and I will hate the way that we leave and all the things that happened, I kind of have given up uh, faith in in having that closer relationship. And I think also I've felt so outside for the last two years of the political process here in the UK that I feel slightly uh, you know, orphaned from all of the parties. And I kind of have watched from a distance for the first time ever in my life all of these parties squabbling, looking awful, terrible leadership, manifestos that made no sense or uninspiring. <laughs> And, and I think that's the, the Remainers. I think there are a lot of people who will find themselves in the wilderness for quite a long time. I don't know what the, the fight back is. I don't know what, what party you would back at this point. We are leaving. And all you hope is that there becomes a voice as things settle down that allows for a more centrist vision to reemerge and a party or a group of politicians who want to speak about inclusiveness and making this country do the things it was doing quite well just two or three years ago. Tom, is it possible, do you think, I mean, ideally within our lifetimes, that that what we might prefer, and I think regular listeners to Monocle will have a, a fairly clear idea of where our sympathies generally lie, but the idea of a, a, a sensible, incrementally reformist, you know, centre-left, socially liberal party... Why does that now seem like the impossible dream that it does? Well, again, I do wonder whether the scale of the defeat for Labour means that that is a faint possibility. That there's no choice but to rebuild. Well, it seemed it would be inconceivable for anyone other than uh, an avowed uh, Corbynista to follow Corbyn. But the scale of the defeat... I mean, to, to just put this in context... Corbyn's Labour did worse than Michael Foote's Labour mm-hmm. in yesterday's election. I, I literally would never have believed that would happen in my lifetime. And, was, and they did it after nine years in opposition as well. It's the, and with the backdrop of Brexit and all the rest. Um, it, it's so impossible to think of, you know, Bishop Auckland v- voting for a Conservative, you know, mar- tough northern mining mm. towns. It's just, it's so impossible. I think that could prompt a sea change. And what you may possibly find, and this is what I cling on some hope, is that, you know, maybe Andrew's MP, uh, Keir Starmer, or someone like Jess Phillips can actually get change that dynamic. And, and, and it's just, there's, a, there's an irony. You know, I have, Stella Creasy is my Labour MP, massive win in Walthamstow. I've just got to be content on my doorstep now. It's I'm being compelled to just look after my own and say, well, look, we've got a good MP. 
Um, and I think that's really depressing. I think the two risks are, one, the, the party has been so kind of uh, in thrall of momentum as a movement. That's why Corbyn hasn't immediately stepped down, because they want to ensure that whoever takes over him is kind mm. of the same person. And the other thing is we have to remember what happened after foot. We didn't get Blair next. We got Kinnock. We got Smith. We, we, it was There was... a. There was years in the wilderness before they came back to a candidate who... 14 of them, in fact. Yeah, and, and, and let's just think about it. It's like, you know, you know Blair, we, we know the Iraq war story. We know how many things he got wrong in the end. But he went out and he appealed to ordinary, middle-class, working-class voters. He had a, a genuinely inclusive message. It was in, in, interesting to say that, you know, hear Joy say that, you know, there was a, a message, you feel included by the Corbyn campaign. I didn't feel included. I, uh, Jewish people didn't feel included. And, and, and there's no contrition from these people. There's no humility from these people. Even today, as you hear them, you know, they've, they've come up with this line that it's, it was Brexit's fault. It wasn't anything they did, that their, their message was popular on the doorstep. Look at the opinion polls that have just come out today. Why did people not vote? Because of Corbyn. They did not like Corbyn. Andrew Tuck and Tom Edwards, thank you both for joining us. This is Monocle's House View. We'll be back after this. You're listening to Monocle's House View, on which we have talked about the UK enough for one week. So it's time to look at a few other things we've learned elsewhere these last seven days. We learned this week that the world may welcome a new nation in 2020. 928 volts. The 300,000 people of the island group of Bougainville, hitherto part of Papua New Guinea, voted for independence by a thumping majority. The referendum was technically advisory and non-binding, but as the United Kingdom has been learning these last few years, technically advisory and non-binding referendums have a way of acquiring a terrifying momentum. Thanks to the UK, however, Bougainville's people and politicians now have, as they face the task of negotiating a separation from a greater entity while maintaining decorum and dignity, a wealth of information on how not to do it. We learned that one pub quiz standard question has a new answer. The title of world's youngest head of government has been seized by 34-year-old Sanamarin as of Tuesday, the Prime Minister of Finland. Here's Monocle's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov on Monday's briefing. Finland was, of course, the first country in Europe to give women the right to vote. And we've had both female prime ministers and a female president before. So obviously for promoting this image of a modern country, this is good. Among Ms. Marin's rewards was a dose of patronising counsel from the world's oldest national leader, Malaysia's Mahathir Mohamad, who is 94 and possesses views on gay people and Jews, which are several centuries older than that. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern reacted rather more humbly to being demoted to the world's second youngest female leader. She needs no advice. Ultimately, one of those issues when people assume, of course, because you're young, um, that uh, you're not bringing 
experience and expertise to the table necessarily. I see she's already a minister. She's already a member of the government. And all, all I would say is go well. We learned that the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo and the 2022 World Cup in Qatar will not echo to the sound of the world's second-best national anthem. Russia has been banned for four years from all major sporting events by the World Anti-Doping Authority, a response to Russia's Anti-Doping Authority having fiddled laboratory data. Russian athletes will still be able to compete if they've proved themselves clean, but will have to do so under a neutral flag. Russia, as is customary, denies everything. Here's Russia analyst Stephen Diel on Tuesday's Globalist. The extraordinary decision came in September last year when WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, showed, I think, a certain weakness in allowing the ban to be lifted as long as Russia then produced more results. And, but then what does Russia do? When it produces the results in January this year, they're examined and they're found to, that they've cheated again. We learned the specific identity of that proverbial unfortunate who is the someone who is always worse off. It is whoever is presently handling public relations for the Nobel Prizes. This week, they beheld the spectacles of 1991 Nobel Peace Laureate Aung San Suu Kyi appearing before the International Court of Justice to deny being an accessory to genocide, and of five countries boycotting the award of this year's literature gong to Austrian author and Slobodan Milosevic fan Peter Hanke. Here's Monocle's Balkans correspondent Guy Delaunay on Wednesday's briefing. Six countries deciding not to send representatives to the ceremony is quite a big deal, really, isn't it? So we've got Bosnia, Croatia, North Macedonia, Albania, Kosovo and Turkey. So uh, the man who's currently holding the, the chair of Bosnia's presidency, Jelko Komšić, uh, said the award was an act of hatred against the relatives of victims and the genocide was rewarded uh, by Hanka receiving the prize. We learned, though it is uncertain when the knowledge may come in handy, how to start a fight in a Mexican art gallery. A fracas verging on an outright stramash, and described by some aghast observers as no less than a full-blown ruckus, erupted at Mexico City's Palace of Fine Arts over the exhibition of a painting depicting revolutionary hero Emilio Zapata, naked but for black high heels and a pink sombrero, astride a clearly excited white stallion. The work by Fabian Chárez prompted a vigorous exchange of views and indeed fists between appreciators and non-appreciators of this kitsch subversion of the machismo with which Zapata is usually endowed. It can really only be hoped that Mr Chárez's next project is a picture of Pancho Villa skipping rope. And a clammy and dank shroud of blame was lifted at long last from the reputation of the late guitarist Jimi Hendrix, who was finally exonerated of importing parakeets to the United Kingdom. A persistent rumour has long had it that Britain's population of invasive, non-native green ring-necked parakeets are descended from a pair released by Hendrix in Carnaby Street in the 1960s, when a man of his predilections might have believed this a groovy thing to do. However, boffins have looked into it and declared Hendrix innocent. 
Anxious listeners may at this point be braced for some variety of parrot-related pun on a Jimi Hendrix song or album title. Well, we've had our best people on it for some while, but it's not as easy as you might think. The Wind Cries Polly was about as good as it got, and that's far from a classic as these things go. Doesn't really rhyme, probably over-reliant on intimate knowledge of Hendrix's catalogue. And with that anguished resignation to the fact that Jimi Hendrix wrote disappointingly few hits with titles containing words that rhyme with beak, squawk or perch, for Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller, and there is this. And that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu with Marcus Hippie. Monocle's House View returns on Monday at 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Monocle.